Well, as I was uh, studying for this week, I came across, as I do most weeks, some resources by John Piper, and uh, he asked the question often with teaching on this topic, and I thought I'd steal it from him. Uh, how do you know that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll be a Christian? You should think about that. How do you know? How do you know that you'll still be a, a Christian if you are one? And uh, if, it, if it's anything other than because God, because God will sustain me, because God will keep me, then, um, man, you're in the right place. You got, you got some work, we've got some work to do, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, um, really, Paul in this passage that Aaron just read is going to uh, push to the surface for us a, a, a doctrine that uh, isn't taught a lot. Um, it, it is at the root of a lot of different churches and denominations existing, but I have found that even within those different denominations, there's not a lot of explicit teaching on this doctrine. So there, what I'm saying is there's a lot of churches that, that you know, are, they're not Baptist because they believe this, or they, maybe they are Baptist because they believe something else, but they don't necessarily teach explicitly on that. It's not until you get kind of deep down in there, and I'm generalizing. Some churches do a great job with this, but I'm talking about the, the doctrine of what we will call the perseverance of the saints. Um, others will call it uh, eternal security. Um, you may have heard it thrown out as once saved, always saved. Uh, you may have been taught that, that you can lose your salvation. You may have been taught that there's no way you can lose your salvation. And the implications of this are huge. And I want you to just think from, with me for a moment because I almost bet to a person, we all know people that are on opposite sides of this, that, that we've seen this example played out in polarized ways. And here's what I mean. I bet most of us know somebody who um, would say that they are a Christian, and if you ask them where they're going to go when they die, they would probably uh, tell you that they would, they're going to go to heaven. And if you pressed into why, it's because they made some profession of faith whenever they were a kid. Um, at maybe at a VBS, maybe at a camp, maybe at a revival, maybe at a church service with grandma or something like that. And I don't mean to minimize that, but I'm saying this person may point back to that and say, well, I did that then. And you know, you've observed their life. There's been absolutely no change, no reflection of following Jesus, no fruit of following Jesus, nothing about the rest of their life from that very moment, really outside of that very moment, looks like they are a follower of Jesus. How many of you know someone like that? And, and, and how many of you have had a hard time at funerals for people like that? I have as a pastor. Because it, it's difficult whenever there is that, uh, th that, that story of that moment of salvation or they accepted Christ when they were six or seven. And, but unfortunately, the, the, the life that the rest of us have observed since then makes us wonder. And that's a tension. And I think most of us have probably felt that. And, and, and maybe less common, but on the other side of that, many of you probably know people who, and maybe this is you, maybe you, you um, believe this and, and this is where you've been brought up and you live in this tension that, that you actually believe you, you can lose your salvation. You can send your salvation away, right? Maybe you've heard the illustration of, of being walked through. If you exit this life without having repented of all of your sin, that you will go to hell. Anybody heard a teaching like that? Basically, maybe the, maybe the illustration is, you know, if you're headed down the highway and you're speeding, that's a sin, right? Because you're not supposed to break the law. So if you're speeding and you have an accident, or maybe you curse at the person right before you have that accident and you die and you haven't had a chance to repent of that sin, will you go to heaven or will you not? These are, these are sort of the polarizing questions. So does that person who made that profession of faith when they were six and there's been no evidence of any fruit or life change since, they've lived a life of, of debauchery and sin ever since that moment, do they, go to this, do they go to heaven just like the rest of us? And, or does that person who was speeding going down the road that didn't get a chance to confess their sin and repent and they exit this life, do they go to hell based off of those 
unrepentant sins. And, and th- this is at the heart of, of this question of why this matters. And so um, I, I want to lay that out there to just create some healthy tension for us. We're going to swim in the deep end just a bit today. And uh, I want to look at Colossians 1, 21 through 23, but it's going to propel us a bit. This is going to, we, we try to, we, we preach expositionally, which means we're going to go line by line through books of the Bible. But occasionally we, we that brings us upon a, a pretty significant um, topic or doctrine, if you will. And so we'll, we'll take this a bit more topically looking at this. We're going to let this throw us into this discussion of perseverance of the saints. And we're going to, uh, we'll, we'll explore some other scriptures um, this morning as we as we look into this. So if you look at Colossians 1, Paul is talking to these people who, it's so important to remember that these are people, right? This is not just some removed ancient book. This is a letter written to a church, people much like you and I. Yes, their culture's different, their dress is different, but their struggles are pretty similar, honestly. Their struggles are pretty similar. They're trying to figure out how do I follow Jesus in this context? And for them, they're getting bombarded with all sorts of other ideas of, hey, yes, you've, you've, you've accepted Jesus as your savior, but now you need to graduate onto other things. You need to learn about these other deeper spiritual things. There's people trying to penetrate the church and add their own agenda and their own teachings to it. And Paul is writing this letter to correct them. He's writing this letter to expound for them the vastness of the salvation that they have been given in Jesus and that they don't graduate from the gospel and move on to other things, but rather they, we lean deeper into the gospel. And you and I are in similar places, aren't we? Right? It may not look quite like that. It may not be in language that is similar, but, but our culture tells us, okay, fine, believe whatever you want to believe about you know, how you get to heaven whenever you die, but, but here's what you really need to be a good human. Here's what we really need to fix our society. Here's what we really need to fix our culture, right? We need, you know, and that could be as simple as these candidates or these theories. There's all sorts of debate and all sorts of movements going on right now, social justice, critical race theory. There's all sorts of things that the world is saying, hey, you need to, you need to really get into this, right? You need to really learn this so that that'll make true change in your life and in the world, right? And so it's not unlike the context that Paul is writing to for these uh, believers in Colossae, and, and he is going to almost, like just with a resounding boldness and unapologeticness that he's going to exalt Jesus above all. Over and over and over again, it's Jesus. Yeah, you're tempted to these things. Yes, people are saying these things, but do not forsake Jesus. It always goes back to Jesus. And so, in verse 21, he says, <clears throat> he's talking to these, again, these people. We hear this, we should hear this uh, when it says, in you, in verse 21, you should place your own name there, okay? You do that. So, and, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Did you realize that, that that's, that's you? I, most, most of your parents didn't tell you, well, I don't know, maybe they did. Maybe they did tell you you're hostile in mind. I think I've Maybe not said exact words to my, my girls, but like, yeah, you're in rebellion, right? You're, you're, you're hostile to my, like, so this is not a self-esteem uh, lesson here, but, but this is the reality of us apart from Christ that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and everyone is dead in their trespasses and sin. It's not the good people and then the bad people. It's not these good people who are doing pretty well morally. They can come to church and they can become, start walking a Christian lifestyle and then they can become Christians and God will accept them because they've lived a Christian life. That is not the gospel. The gospel says there is no one who is good. There is no one who seeks God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and what we have earned for our sin is death. What we deserve for our sin is death, hell, and eternal suffering. That, that God is completely just in that ruling that you and I are sinners, that you and I are hostile in mind, and we were living and doing evil deeds. Now, your deeds may not be evil in the way that, like, the world might not have called your, your, your deeds evil, but we don't judge ourselves by the world's standards. We, we have to look at God's word for his standard. Okay, so the world may tell you you're a pretty good person. You may be able to look around at the world and pick out a few people that make you feel like a pretty good person, right? Right, like you could look around and go, well, I'm not, at least I'm better than that guy, right? Pastor Darren used to say, well, it's not, it's not cool to be the, just the tallest midget, right? That's not, that's not what we're trying to do. Just look at, see who we're bigger than, see who we're better than, right? That's not, that's not a part of the deal. Like that, that's, that's not how we gauge ourselves, and so we have to, I think he said jockey. I need to apologize. That was a bad choice of words, and I'm serious. I, that's kind of funny. I actually am serious. I shouldn't have said midget, so forgive me. It was inappropriate. 
Call us jockey, I think is probably still offensive. I'm just gonna stop digging that hole. I'm just gonna stop digging that hole. I'm, I'm sincere and I ask your forgiveness. The point is, we don't look at other people, right? We don't look at other people to say, man, I'm pretty good. I, got, I'm, I don't have to worry, right? I don't have to worry. No, no, no. We look at God's word, and when we do that, it says we've all sinned. We were all hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, right? So we are in rebellion against God. You say, well, I'm not killing anybody. I'm not, I'm not getting drunk every day. I'm not gambling away my money. I'm not, I'm not in sexual sin. But, but the Bible looks beyond that, right? Into, into pride, right? Into your motives and well beyond. And so the reality is we all look into the mirror of the Bible and we realize that we are indeed sinful. This is the gospel, and this is where we start. This is where we must start. But he says in verse 22, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death, right? So we were there. We got ourselves there, but how do we get out? Do we get ourselves out? No. Who gets us out? Who gets us out? Look back, if it, it's, it's referring to he. If you got to look back, verse, or chapter one is all about what? Jesus, right? It's all about the preeminence of Christ. It's all about what God has done. So he says, we are dead. We are the ones hostile in rebellion against God, hopeless and dead in our sins. And yet, verse 22, those of us who have become Christians, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So in that verse 22, we have two parts of salvation. So if we're, talk, we're talking doctrine today. So you need to know that when it comes to uh, the doctrine of salvation, we have um, some big words, but we have first and foremost, not foremost, first, when we get saved, we are justified. What does that mean? It means we are no longer held in contempt, no longer held guilty and held accountable for our sins. Okay, so we just convinced, we just walked through the fact that we're all sinners. The Bible says that if you will confess your sin and cry out and trust that the Lord Jesus is the Savior of all and make him the Lord of your life, that he was born again, that he was raised back to life, that he's the Savior, then you shall be saved. And in that moment, if you trust Jesus, you realize you're a sinner, man, I need a Savior. You realize that when you stand before a holy God, he will not get enough in the good scale to outweigh the bad scale, and he won't let you in on that. You need to realize that. And when you do, when you realize that you're going to stand before a holy God and you have no hope on your own merits, then you come to a place of realizing why you need Jesus. And when you cry out to Jesus and say, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy upon me. I want to serve you. I want to turn to you now. The Bible says you're saved. And in that moment, you are what we call justified, meaning you are forgiven Amen, church, this is good news. We are forgiven. Our sins are washed away. The Bible says, though your sins be as scarlet, come. Let's reason together. We'll make them, I'll make them white as snow. He says, that's good news, church. Y'all need to get, get with me here. This is good news. We are forgiven. All of our sins are washed away, removed as far as this east is from the west. Kids, you know how far east is from the west? It's exactly right, race. Uh, that's exactly right, buddy. You nailed it. It's like, ah, there's no, like we, it's exactly right. They're gone. You nailed it, race. That's it. They're gone. As far removed as east is from the west. We're justified. And that, as we're going to see today, will never change. We don't go back to our, our dead condition, right? Okay, so, but what he's going to say is in verse 22 is that we've reconciled us We've been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, right? We just partook, or took communion to, to um, <clears throat> remember that in order. So, okay, so he's not done with you there. And this is important. We need to remember this. This is part of what fuels the confusion around this doctrine is a lot of churches just stop there. Okay, you've been forgiven. Cool, see you in heaven and next Sunday, Right? Keep coming to church, and we'll see you in heaven. We're just going to keep preaching that gospel. That come get forgiven, and we'll tell everybody to get forgiven. And, and we don't, we don't, oftentimes we don't move on. But it says there's a reason. That, like, he, he, he's, he's reconciled us in order that he may present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. All right? So he's, he, he's forgiven you. He's reconciled you. He's washed your sins away so that... He could present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is describing the process of sanctification. 
So you're forgiven, your record's wiped clean, but you still live in this body of flesh and you're still struggling against sin. Can I get an amen? You're still struggling, right? There's still sin there. We have to put it to death. We have to move toward holiness, right? And so he says he's done that and, and the, the intention of him saving us is so that we can be presented blameless and holy on that day. So that's describing this process of growth that we call sanctification. And for some of us, we work at this for years. Some of you were saved when you were six. There was a legitimate prayer said by you and a legitimate regeneration when you were six or when you were five or when you were four or seven or whatever. And you've been spending the, the rest of your life from that moment working on sanctification. Others of you, maybe you got saved yesterday. Maybe you're gonna get saved today. The thief on the cross got saved that day and Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. That guy got justified. He didn't have any time for sanctification. Does that mean he's in a different heaven than you and me? Nope, he's right there. He's right there, right? It's an incredible, but, but it's an incredible doctrine to, to examine that, that our salvation rests on God and God alone. And, but with the time that we are left, he continues to work in us. He continues a process in us. Philippians 1 says that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. All right, so, so that is talking about glorification, right? So that on that day, we will be placed there, holy, blameless, fully glorified. Before I got, what does that mean? That means no longer is there struggle. No longer is there sin present that we're trying to get over and become more like Jesus. We will be transformed fully. So the way we like to say it is in justification, we have been saved. Say, we have been. We have been saved from the penalty of our sins. Okay, that's justification. In sanctification, we are being. Say, I, I are being. I know, it's bad English. We are being saved from the power of sin. Okay, we are being saved. That's present tense. That's happening. As long as you're alive, between your justification and your glory, you're going to continually be, God's going to work in you to save you from the power of sin in increasing measures. The Bible says one degree of glory at a time. It's often a slow and painstaking process. And then one day, one glorious, awesome day, we will be saved. Church says, we will be saved from the presence of sin. That's good news, isn't it? And that's, that's, that's salvation, right? Justification, sanctification, glorification, it's all a part of it. We are being saved. It is an active tense, right? Okay, so that's all good news. We're fairly familiar with that. Now, Paul's gonna throw this really frustrating word in here in verse 23 when he says what? If. That's different for a lot of us, isn't it? If. What? Whoa, I didn't know there was an if. I thought I was good. We just sang about how nothing could separate us, right? He's the God who stays. He's not right. What is that about? What is this if about? And this is where this doctrine that we started uh, prefacing comes into play because we need to rightly understand these sort of warnings, these sort of conditional statements that get tacked on because it's not just here in Colossians. It's, it's, it's actually uh, quite regularly um, peppered throughout the New Testament, particularly in, in John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. It's in Hebrews, and we're going to mention a few of those. And so we need to deal with this, right? We need to deal with this. And this is going to be some of the, the, the passages that leads other denominations to think differently than we do, right? And I probably really haven't even told you really well what we believe. But let's look at verse 23 here. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven in which I, Paul, became a minister. So he says, all of this will happen if, well, maybe that's not exactly how it says. He says, these things have happened if. You notice the difference there? It doesn't say, hey, if you continue in your faith, then God will save you, does it? It's actually, it's, the condition is the other way around. It's actually saying, these things have happened if you continue in your faith. You see the difference? It's subtle. We'll dive a little deeper, right? So this, this condition of continuing or persevering is not a condition of which we earn our salvation, but rather one of which proves that we had it in the first place. Okay, I'll say that again and we'll dive deeper. Okay, this if, this condition of continuing in our faith is not a condition of which we earn our salvation, meaning if we continue and if we do it well, right, then we will get salvation. No, no, no. It is actually a proof that when we continue, it will have proved that we were saved in the first place. Making a little bit of sense? 
All right, let's, let's keep going. Let's, let's dive a little bit deeper. So this is, this is Paul uh, bringing up this issue. And actually, in the, in the, the Greek language here, there's, there's actually no doubt being mentioned from Paul. He's not, he's not saying, oh, I really, really hope you do. He's sure that they will. But what, he, what he's actually putting before there, he doesn't want to give false assurance. He knows that, that this is going to be read in a context similar to ours where there are people that have infiltrated the church that are trying to preach something other than Jesus, trying to preach something other than faith alone through grace alone for salvation, right? So Paul knows it's going to be this crowd that's going to have people that aren't actually believers, and he doesn't want to give them false assurance. And so he throws this in here, and he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. So Paul's not trying to threaten or scare believers, but rather Rather, say that those who don't truly believe will reveal themselves because they won't last. Okay, so what Paul is saying is that those who don't actually believe in the gospel, they will reveal themselves because they won't last. Okay? Now, it's important for us because I think a lot of the, the culture that is behind us that brought us to this place in, in Bible Belt has, has brought a lot of confusion to this. It's brought a lot of people who look at salvation a lot like we look, like, look at a vaccination. And I know that's a whole other topic that we can't even talk about without getting all sorts of triggered and stuff nowadays. But the idea of a, vac- a vaccination is to be inoculated, right? It's, it's, to, it's to be exposed to that so that you don't have to worry about it in the future, right? That's my overly simplistic layman's description. And so what a lot of us have experienced is this gospel of, hey, do you want to go to hell when you die? Well, no. Well, what do I got to do? I got to pray this prayer and accept Jesus into my heart. When we do that and we think, boom, got the, got the shot. I'm good. Right? I'm good. I don't need my mask. I don't need nothing. Right? I'll do whatever I want. That's what a lot of people do. I'll do whatever I want. I'll sin. I'll sleep with whoever I want. I'll drink whatever I want, however much of it I want. doesn't matter. I could steal. I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to love my family. I don't have to be faithful. Right? I, what about, what about God? Oh, yeah, I got the God card. I got, I got my shot, right? That's how we look at the gospel a lot of times. That's how a lot of people in our area look at the gospel. Is, oh, I got, I got my vaccine. I got my shot. I'm good. There's a lot of people, if you start talking to them about their faith, they will tell you something similar that they've got some, they've got, they've got a story to point to. They have no faith, no regular relationship in their life, but they've got a story of, of some vaccine-like experience where they believe that they're secure, even though there has been zero life change, zero fruit, zero evidence of Christ becoming the Lord of their life. So Paul doesn't want to give that false assurance. So he gives a condition like this. All right, let me, so here's what we believe. It's different than once saved, always saved. That's, that's a pretty... It's a pretty Baptist theology, and there's, there's other denominations too, but they, they would say once, if you're, if, once you got saved, then you're always saved. Now, we would just clarify that a bit, and if I wanted to be super simple, what I would say is, if saved, always saved, okay? So that would be my most simple explanation, but let me go a little bit deeper. Uh, this is from Wayne Grudem. He says this, the perseverance of the saints is defined this way. Um, All those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. Okay, so it's sort of this two-part. So it says, all who, who have been born again, who've truly been born again, will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. Now, we're going to address that a little bit because I, I know that, that that actually can leave some tension. Well, how do if 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 uh, persevering is the proof, how do I know until I get to the end that I've actually you know what I mean? It could create some tension. I, I get that. And this is a, a doctrine that that we're, we're laying over the Bible and trying to explain what we what we get cumulatively when we look at the, at verses that address this idea. Right? The Bible doesn't you know come out and just say what we just said. This is a deduction of of of, of the scriptures, and this is where we at, at the journey would would land on this this topic. And I know again, you're welcome. And this is not something we have to, to divide over. But this is a, a, a an amazing passage. This is an amazing doctrine that we want to to teach 
and not avoid when we come to it in passages because it does indeed fuel our hope and it does indeed fuel a desire for purity, a desire for seeking righteousness. This should not allow us, this this truth should should not allow us to live in, in continual habitual sin without repentance and angst and struggle. Okay, so we'll get into that just a bit more. Let's start by just addressing the idea that, that God will hold us, okay? Because that's what that says, that if you are truly in him, you're not going anywhere, okay? If you're truly in him, you're not going anywhere. We need to start by just addressing that. You see it in the language of Colossians 1. He says, who has reconciled us? Him. And we didn't reconcile ourselves. We didn't check off some list. We didn't earn our salvation. We didn't make the team, y'all. It didn't make the team. It ain't going to be like that. It, I saw a picture of uh, somebody this week running up to a, a school door to see if they made the cheerleading squad. And it, heaven ain't going to be like that, right? We're not going to run up there and see if we made the team based on our, our, our performance. It's not going to be like that. How do we get saved? He reconciled us. He bought us. He paid the price. Jesus, 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 Jesus says this, John 6, 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen to this. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. So how how many people are Jesus going to lose? Zero. For this will be the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will, I will raise him up on the last day. There's no dropouts in there. We're going to keep seeing that. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. And I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. It doesn't say, you know, if they, if they make it. No, he says, my sheep know me. They know my voice. And I'll give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And this is awesome. This is a, this is a, a boss statement by our, our, our Savior. He says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Church, say amen. amen. Say, Jesus is awesome, right? He says, no one is going to come get him. I got him, and nobody's taking him from me. He ain't going to fumble, right? It's a secure place to be in the hands of Jesus. King Jesus will lose no one. No one is able to snatch him out of the Father's hand. It says, Romans eight thirty says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he <clears throat> called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no, there's no dropouts in between justification and glorification. You see that? It's a, if you are justified, then you will be glorified. If you have been saved, then you will be with Jesus in heaven. It is, it is a very simple truth, but it is profound and it is overwhelmingly good news that we need to lean into. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 and 2 says, I make known to you, brother, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you now stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So now there's this if again. So you see these, these, these tensions of Jesus says, if I've got you, nobody's taking you. If I've got you, no one could separate us. And then there's this other language, this warning language of, you're secure if you continue into the end. And, and 1 Corinthians 15 there says, because if not, you believed in vain. So even in that passage, it's, it's pointing to, if you, don't, if you don't make it to the end, it's not that you had your salvation and lost it, it's actually proof that you never really had it. It's actually proof that your belief was in vain. Okay, so that's the first thing we need to know, is that the reason we'll be a Christian tomorrow when we wake up is because he will keep us. He is faithful. And he is able, okay? He is able. But then what about the people who fall away? Because we, raise your hand if you know somebody like that. Know somebody who became a Christian, it seemed, right? They joined the church. Maybe even became a leader in the church. And they've walked away. They're no longer there. What, what about them? What do we do with that? What about them? Well, well, um, First, let, let's look at 1 John 2, 19. It says this. It says, they went out from us. Talking about leaving the fellowship, right? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. That's that's. 
Interesting language, but I think it's pretty clear, right? John clearly states there that when people fall away from the fellowship with the church and their um, belief, if you will, in Christ, that they thereby show that their faith was not real in the first place and that they were never part of the true body of Christ. So their actions of leaving the church and the faith show that they were not truly born again. But there's... They, they, they thought they were. They were there. They were a part of it, right? So it, it's not just that simple that some would come in and it would be a quick deal. Like we've all seen that. People come in, get baptized real quick, and, and, then, and then within a couple of weeks, they're back to that. We, Jesus illustrates this with the parable of the sower, right? I'm not going to teach all that, but he says, hey, seed is thrown. Some of it is, you know, just lands on the concrete. Birds come pick it up. There's never anything that happens. Some of it lands in shallow soil. And it sprouts up quickly, doesn't it? And we've seen that. We've celebrated. Oh my gosh, look at the life change. Look at what happened there, right? And, but then... It's, when the sun comes, it's, it withers, right? So life gets hard, it withers, they abandon the church. It wasn't, it wasn't real faith, right? Others, they, they're going to get a little bit more, but, you know, they're, they're going to show up. They're going to last a little bit longer, but eventually the thorns and the thistles are going to choke it out. But he says, but others fall on good soil, and that's going to keep bearing fruit, right? That's, what, that's a very quick overview of the parable of the sower. You can look it up and, and dive in later. But Jesus says that we should actually expect that. When we preach the gospel, it's not uncommon. It doesn't mean we've done something wrong as a church to have, believe, have people that pop up as believers and then they don't last. That, that, that's a part of the gospel going forward, that that's how this whole kingdom thing is going to grow. And so there's going to be people who actually show strong evidence of conversion that actually aren't converted. Let's look at Matthew 7. Matthew says, or Jesus says in Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not, did we not prophesy in your name? Okay, so this is the picture that Jesus is saying. Is on judgment day, there's going to be plenty of people who, who don't get into the kingdom of heaven, but they're going to be surprised, right? Because they had the Christian label. They had their name tag. They had their role. They had their seat at a church. Right? They had their name on a role at church, a membership role. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, man, my name's still on a Baptist role somewhere. Right? I know. I get it. That's how it works sometimes. But that, that's going to be a reality that Jesus says, and they're going to go, whoa, 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 Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we prophesy in your name? So this is not even just flippant, easy confession. This is like people who showed evidence of being converted. He says, hey, I, I prophesied in your name, and I, I cast out demons in your name, and, and we did mighty works in your name. And Jesus will say this. Listen, listen to what he says, because he doesn't say, yeah, I know, and once one, we knew each other then, but you've walked away, and I've, I've disowned you. That's not what he says. He says what? I'll declare to them what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, I never knew you. Not that I, hey, yeah, I know. I know we used to be on good terms and you did some cool stuff, but then what happened? You walked away. You're off the team. No, he says, I never knew you. There was a false conversion. There was false evidence of that person being born again. So John, back to John 2, 19. John says, when that happens, they're proving that they were never part of the fellowship in the first place. All right, now I want to be fair, uh, I, and I want to, uh, I know there's some of you from traditions that would teach you that you can indeed lose your salvation, and I know that um, there's passages that, that seem to, to present that way. So I want to look at one of the hardest ones. I just want to dive in. Right, I want to be fair. It's easy for me to just present all the ones that are really clearly about the security of a, of a true believer. But let's look at Hebrews 6. This is one of the, the, the harder passages in the, in the Bible, if I'm being honest. And this is a more common one that, that will be taught in places that do you know, teach that you can lose your salvation. So Hebrews chapter 6. Let's, let's start with verse four. Actually, start with verse three. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and, and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I, I, I wasn't planning on this. I actually want to read verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So I'm going to come back to that. Because this, this sermon, this, this doctrine is not meant to create this doubt and, and leave you wondering until the end if you have assurance. You can't have assurance on this side. You can't have assurance that you will persevere. Okay? Yes, persevering will be a proof that you were truly saved, but you can have assurance. And so that, that's sort of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's like, hey, I, I know this is hard, but I'm not really talking about all of you when I say this. You guys have shown evidence of being God's people. You've shown continual evidence of being in Jesus. And so I don't have any doubt that you're going to make it through. I don't have any doubt that you're going to persevere. But there are people who have had spiritual experiences and have claimed the name of Jesus who have not actually been saved. And Paul does not want to pull his punches with those people. And neither do I. And neither do I. So let's dive in here. What, what is, this is a hard text. I remember encountering... Um, one of my good friends that we, we sort of led FCA together in high school, and, and, and we got into this discussion because he thought he could, you know, send away a salvation. And, um, and that, that caused him angst. I don't say that flippantly. Like, he had a lot of angst about that, a lot of guilt and shame that he wrestled with. And so I was like, well, I don't think that's true, but I didn't know, I didn't know why. And so he gave me this passage, and I took this passage to my pastor, my, my country, uh, you know, and he was just like, well, yeah, that just proves, the, that just proves our point. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if it does, man. I don't know. <laughs> you have to explain. And he kind of didn't. And I was like, oh, all right, cool. Um, but anyway, we're going to try to explain. So it says, and this we will do if God permits. So there's that if word again. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened. It sounds like, okay, those, you know, we use that, we see that language elsewhere to refer to those who have been saved. Who have been, who have, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Okay, this sounds like language of people who have legitimately been saved. Or even have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So he's saying, if they've, if they've been enlightened and, and have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the heavenly gift and the goodness of the word of God and the powers of age to come, if they've had these spiritual experiences, which is not unlike Matthew 7, those guys cast out demons, didn't they? That's, that's powers of age to come, right? So you just gotta know, Jesus gives us this context to say that, yeah, these people actually were never a part of it. But again, Hebrews is, this is going to be a confusing passage because it sounds like they've been enlightened, they're sharing, but, but there's actually some, you got to dive deep. I don't have time to unpack it all, but, but that word for enlightened is actually just about general knowledge, right? It's actually, it, it's here just referring to, uh, they, they've been made known, right? They, they, they understand, they could probably even articulate and explain back the gospel and how you get saved, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean salvation there. They, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that they've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, okay? So, but th this is what it says, and, and if they've fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again. Okay, now, part of what is being said here is, listen, if you've truly been born again, you can't repeat that deal. Because this is supernatural. Like, it's, you've been born again, right? Meaning, like, your old life has passed away. Your old heart was removed. God put a new one in you, and that is such a supernatural and overwhelming experience. It can't be repeated. They don't, you don't get to just get a redo on that. Like, you don't, if you've been born again, then you've been born again, period, right? But, but it says they've fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, right? Saying this would make a mockery of our salvation. If this was how it worked, you could sin away your salvation and then have to be brought to repentance again. That would dilute and water down and take the power away of the gospel itself. But this, this is the most telling part, verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop that is what? Useful to those who forsake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. What is that saying? That's back to the parable of the sower. 
Right? It's, it's back to these other passages that say, yeah, if you have a desire to obey the word of God, that, that's this, that's your fruit showing up. That's saying when the rain falls, and, and so that's, what, that's what's going to happen. We're all going to experience the same part of life. And when that stuff happens and we see that, that, okay, so imagine two people get saved. Back to the parable of sower, okay? So you're at an evangelism conference. The, the, the gospel goes out. People are told, Jesus is Savior, you must repent and believe, all right? And a couple people respond, right? This guy responds, this, this gal responds, and they, they come and they confess Jesus, they get baptized, right? Now, guess what? Life keep hap- keeps happening to each of those individuals, doesn't it? That doesn't take away the bills they got. It doesn't take away the struggles they got. It doesn't take away the pain that's in them. There's still struggles there, right? So as that life continues to happen, one of them leans further into Jesus. One of them runs to church and says, I need help. I need to know more. I need to learn how. I'm struggling. I'm still not holy. I, I, I hate my sin. I, I, sc- I messed up again. And, and they're weeping and they're, they're crying out and they're, they're pleading with you and with God and anybody that will listen to help them become more like Jesus because life is still happening and their heart is broke and they can't stand the sin. And another one says, well, I tried this Jesus thing. I thought it was going to fix everything. I'm done. I'm out. What does that prove? That they had their salvation and lost it? No. It says, verse 7, if it produces a cross that's useful, or crop that's useful for those for whose sake it's cultivated, that would be God, right? Then they receive a blessing from God. So, that, oh man, this is so good. What does the Bible say? When, when, when David is, is, is grieved over his sin in Psalm 51, he says, it's not sacrifices and, and, and songs that you desire, but what? A broken and contrite heart. That's a crop that is useful to God. David says, that's what you desire and that's what I'm gonna bring. So that person, though they're not perfect, they're, they're still struggling, that posture of repentance, that posture of humility, humility, that posture of, of, of longing for holiness and purity, that's a, that's, a, that's a crop that is useful to the God who saved her, right? But, it says, verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is going to be to be burned. So, they would say that that person who just walked away they're still headed to hell. They weren't truly saved. All right. Good? Clear enough? <laughs> I know. This is a tension. I get it. This is a tension. All right? Um, <clears throat> now, here's one how I want to close. Uh, so, two questions of warning. And, well, one question of warning, one question of assurance. So, some of you are asking, how do I know that? How do I know? That's a, that's a good question. That's a good question. I don't want to start by asking those of you who have made some profession of faith and you think you're Christian, but you're not sure if, you're not sure if there's legitimacy into that. Let me ask you a, a pretty simple but very telling question. Okay, Those of you who have made a profession of faith, but you're not sure, let me ask you this. Are you able to continue in sin without your heart being broken? Are you able to continue in sin without your heart being broken? Do you just not care? Do you think it's no big deal? Yeah, I know the preacher says I shouldn't look at porn, but it's no big deal. I know I shouldn't be sleeping with somebody else, but it's not that big a deal. I know that I shouldn't be filing for divorce, but God will forgive, and it's no big deal. If you have a heart that just doesn't care that you're sinning, and you're just throwing out grace as your get-out-of-jail-free card, the Bible will say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, you need to take a look. You need to take a look, because that's not evidence of a believer. First John says over and over again that if you love him, you'll, you'll do his commands. You'll long for them. It doesn't mean perfection. It means a longing. God's word has been written on our heart, and we're not satisfied with anything less. We may have seasons of rebellion, but when we're confronted, when our sin is confronted, we have a soft heart and we repent. That's why church discipline has to exist. It helps show the fruit. It helps be a warning to those who, who say they follow Jesus, but they don't give a rip when they're in sin. And the church, meaning you, not just me, we're the last step, just so you know, but you go to them and say, brother, sister, you're in sin. You're in sin. This is not, it's not how God wants you to live. Please come back. And if that person says, I don't care, 
and they keep going. Then we bring somebody else, and if they keep going, then the Bible says, stop acting like they're a Christian. That's church discipline in a two-second or two-minute summary, right? There's a lot more to that. But it says, hey, you keep confronting them, and they don't repent, then don't, don't act like they're a Christian because they're not living like Jesus is Lord. But somebody who is a Christian, yeah, you're going to have times of being out of step. You've got times of being backslidden. But when you're confronted, your heart's going to be soft. You're going to repent, and you're going to move toward him. Not perfectly, but you're going to move toward him. That, God says, that is the harvest I'm looking for, a broken and contrite heart. So if you can continue in sin without having conviction, you need to take a look at your salvation. I'm not trying to... I'm sorry to say I'm not trying to scare you, but frankly, I am. If that's where you're at, you should be scared. You should take an honest look at yourself, at, at what your experience with Jesus has been. Okay, now on the other side of that, some of you are like, well, how, man, should all of us be questioned? Like, maybe we all need to, I remember, I remember being a, a, a kid, like a teenager, and I got saved, I got baptized, but I just didn't think it took, right? Because I was still struggling. And, and so I remember being on my knees, like, at bed, like, I didn't want my mom to know I was struggling. So I was like, had this Bible, I was written Romans 9, 10, I was like, okay, okay. All right, you confess with your mouth. Believe me, confess with your mouth. Okay, I confess it. I say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe, I believe, okay, believe in my heart. Believe in my heart, my heart. Like, I'm just like how, you know, how do you muster something in your heart? You ever tried to do that? I just couldn't do it. It's like, ah, I'm trying, right? So I'm trying to do it right. Okay, confess with my mouth. Believe in my heart that Jesus is the Lord. God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Okay, confess with my mouth. Believe in my heart. All right, I should be good. But I didn't feel it, right? I didn't have the security. Listen, that's not where God wants you to live. He doesn't want, this is not about all of you leaving here in fear and man, I don't even know. No, he wants you to have assurance. Like that's the heart behind these passages and there is so many of them. I didn't get to even walk through them all, but Jude one twenty four says, he is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will complete it, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Jeremiah, Old Testament talking about the new covenant that's going to come. It says, I will put fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. 1 Corinthians 1 says that Christ will sustain you to the end. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Not that you are faithful, but that God is faithful. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So how do you... How do you know then? How do you have assurance? Well, the first thing I would just ask you quickly is, do, do you have belief? Yeah, belief. Most famous passage, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that what? Whosoever believes in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. So that's a big deal. And don't discount that. Do you actually believe? Do you have belief in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, that he is the Lord of life, that he is the Savior? Do you have belief? That's the first. And if you do, that should bring you assurance. The second thing is, do you have an ongoing work of the Spirit in your life? What do you mean, George? Am I perfect? No. Are you longing to be more like Jesus? Do you see, do you, do you have an ongoing relationship with him, or is it just a, yeah, I prayed this prayer, and I guess I'm good. I got my ticket, but I don't know, like, anything else. But do you have an ongoing work? Do you desire to be at church? Do you desire to be under God's teaching and with God's people? Do you desire to be less sinful and more like Jesus? If so, that's evidence. That's assurance, right? That you will persevere because you have truly been saved. You are really in Jesus. And therefore, it's not a question of whether you will persevere because he will hold you. No one will snatch you out of his hand. Not even your own nonsense. Not even your own foolishness. Not even your own rebellion. You can't get out of Jesus' hands if you truly are in him in the first place. And if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, look back. Look back over a long, are you more like Jesus than you were five or 10 years ago? If so, there's, there's a good assurance in that. If not, I want to go back to the previous question. I want to look at that. Okay? Second Peter chapter 1, 5 and 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, you will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Keep pursuing holiness. Keep pursuing virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness. Do you got to do that in order to earn your salvation? Nope. But because you've been saved, keep pursuing that. Keep pursuing purity. Keep pursuing righteousness. If, you, if you're doing that, you're, you're, you're not going to fall. You're not going to fall away. You're not going to fall out of Jesus' hands. You're secure, and you will persevere to the end. So in short, if you are truly in Christ, if saved, man, always saved. But it's not this flippant, oh, I prayed this prayer, once saved, oh, no. If truly saved, evidenced by these things we just talked about, evidenced by a lordship of Jesus in your life, you're not defined by your worst season of backsliding or of sin or rebellion. You're not defined by that. But you know, you know honestly if you've surrendered to Jesus or not. And if you haven't, you've been made aware today. And it's on you. You'll be responsible. But the good news is, it's not too late. While there is breath in your lungs, you can come and repent and fall at the feet of this Jesus. And guess what? He'll receive you with gladness and grace. And he'll hold you securely until the end. No one will take you out of his hand. So I don't know the reasons. I don't know what led you there. But just come today. If you're not a Christian, don't wait. Come, receive Jesus. If you're here and you're like, man, I love Jesus, then let's rejoice. Let's rejoice that Jesus has got us in his hands. Amen, church? Jesus has got us in his hands. Why will we be a Christian when we wake up tomorrow? Because he's faithful. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this good news. Thank you for this hard passage, but this good news. Help us, Lord. We need it. We don't always understand the mystery of all that you are. But we confess that you are what your word says, and you are a good shepherd. You are the great king of ages, and you hold us in your hand. Because you made a way through giving your own life, Lord, overwhelm us this morning. May we worship, and may we be caught up into a relationship with you. Some for the first time, give us faith to respond, Lord. Others, may we just be overwhelmed and in gratitude that our hope rests in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.